Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I have the privilege of being your host as we work our way through the sermons that were preached and published by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the eminent Victorian pastor and preacher, sermons that still instruct us and bless us with regard to the preaching of Christ today. Each day we work our way through the next sermon in sequence, and you can follow along at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter if you want to do that. Other people say one a week will be enough, in which case we're choosing a representative sermon that features each week on our podcast, and if you'd like to follow along with that, as well as on Reading Spurgeon at Twitter, you can find us on mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can sign up for a weekly newsletter where you'll get a PDF of the featured sermon. This week we're reading from Sermon 682 to 688. Our featured sermon is number 685. If you want to get ahead for next week, there's Sermons 689 through 695. The featured sermon is 692, Joy and Peace in Believing. But back to this week, and our sermon is entitled, Heedlessness in Religion. It was preached in 1866, on the 15th of April, from the text 2 Kings 10 and verse 31. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. Spurgeon begins by pointing out that Jehu was zealous in pursuing the particular task for which the Lord had appointed him, and in that respect he was a a root and branch reformer. The duty that the Lord had assigned was very much in keeping with Jehu's character. But, says Spurgeon, Jehu knew nothing of that spiritual force which would have led him to inquire, what more would God have me to do? His actions as God's executioner were right enough, but his heart was wrong. He was impulsive and impetuous, and drove furiously when the work was to his mind, but he had no heart to other service for Jehovah. Spurgeon goes on to point out that anxious care to know and serve God did not suit Jehu's headstrong disposition. The man was all flash and dash, but careful, humble obedience he knew nothing of. And it's this spirit in Jehu upon which Spurgeon focuses. He uses him as an example, a negative model, if you like, to peel back the layers of our own souls and to ask us what is our disposition and does it bear any relationship dangerously to that of Jehu. Spurgeon approaches all this under four points. First of all, heedlessness in religion and showing the one peculiar or distinctive point in which that heedlessness mainly discovers or reveals itself. Then, moving on to show that, with regard to this point, heedlessness in religion is fatal. Thirdly, showing the usefulness of holy care and heedfulness. And finally, fourthly, closing by endeavouring to exhort you to practice that heedfulness before you leave this house of prayer. First of all, says Spurgeon, and as so often, expressing his dependence on the Holy Spirit, May the Holy Ghost enable us to show the point in which heedlessness most of all displays itself. What was it then that Jehu disregarded? 
He took great heed to kill Ahab's family. He took great heed to extirpate or wipe out Baal's worshippers. But he took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. And this, says our preacher, is the point in which a great many flaming professors show their want of vital godliness, because they exercise no holy circumspection, no holy watchfulness or carefulness, and show no anxiety to walk in the law of the Lord their God with all their heart, which they would be very desirous of doing if they were saved men. And Spurgeon now walks through uh, several characteristics that would reveal this problem. First of all, he says there are lots of people who are desperate to be thought of as Christians, but they take no heed even to know God's will. They just don't have any regard to read their own Bible, to study the Scriptures, to seriously ascertain God's way of salvation, to know, understand, uh, pursue God's rule for a believer's behaviour in the church and in the world. They just don't read their Bibles, says Spurgeon. And perhaps today there'd be thousands upon thousands in exactly the same category. They want to be thought of as Christians, but they've got no real regard for the revelation of God. Now, says Spurgeon, if my doctrinal opinions or daily actions are such that I dare not put them into the scale of God's word and give them a thorough pondering, I have reason to suspect that I shall be found wanting at the last. What does the regenerate soul cry? Lord, what would you have me to do? Carnal religionists, that is, unconverted people who like a dash of religion, they go driving on with headlong inconsiderateness, but spiritual minds pause and ponder and inquire, and all with the one aim to be sound in the statutes of the Lord. Then he goes on and says, some, if they actually do take pains in any regard to know what God says, they don't then take heed to practice what God commands. A man who professes to hold a principle which he does not practice is in fact a person without any principle whatsoever, except a shockingly bad one, says Spurgeon. My dear friend, if I am truly the Lord's servant, I shall feel that I must make haste and delay not in all things to walk according to his will. And though mournfully conscious of many infirmities and imperfections, yet at any rate I shall heartily desire to practice what I know. Beware then, dear friends, of letting the head grow at a great rate while the arm is shriveled. Knowledge involves a responsibility which will end in many stripes for disobedience. So then, salvation brings us into the household of God, by it we become obedient children and we cease to be thoughtless Jehus. We don't only want to know God's will, but we want to do what we know. But Spurgeon goes on. There are some people who know something and who do something, but not as if it had any real divine authority about it. Why are we doing what we do? We must bow to each command of this book because it is God's command, says Spurgeon. So it's not just a, a surface performance. It's not just a mere traditionalism. It's not going through the motions. Our course of life must not be guided by the impression that such and such a thing is respectable, but by the consciousness that we're servants of the Most High God and that whatsoever he says unto us, it is our privilege to perform. So here is that. Uh, sense of living in coram deo, under the eye of God, 
not as if we're being driven along, but delighting to, to exist and to act before the eye of our Heavenly Father. To obey mechanically, to go through the motions, is scarcely becoming in the servant of so great and gracious a God. Rather, consecration to Jesus should be the ruling passion of our soul. This is a deliberate, this is a conscious and conscientious desire to serve him. Beloved, let the word of Jesus be an irresistible force with us. Let us follow because Jesus leads. And so what God wills, that, that, that binds our conscience, that grips our soul. Let truth banish error, says Spurgeon. Let superstition yield to the gospel. Let forms and ceremonies fly before the doctrines of free grace. Let every man bow at the name of Jesus because Deus vult, God wills it. Let the crucified be everywhere adored for God wills it. And then more than that, Jehu did not give heed to all the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart and Spurgeon impeaches the present age. The half-heartedness of the most of us is that which prevents us glorifying Christ. We do preach, but not as dying men to dying men. We do pray, but not as Jacob wrestled with the angel. We do give, but not as bounteous givers. We seek to live in holiness, but not with that enthusiasm which becomes the cross of Christ. And so the preacher summarizes it, and this is a helpful way of uh, of us thinking about how we could preach or teach if that's our privilege. He says, having gone through those four elements, he binds them up in one sentence. Thus I have tried to set forth where the mischief lay in the matter of Jehu, that he did not care to know the whole of God's will. If he knew it, he did not study to practice it. He did not yield obedience because it was God's will, and he never yielded his whole heart to the love of God. Jehu was very angry at other people's sins, and we may be too without ever being delivered from our own. Jehu was quite ready to strike down Ahab and his family, quite ready to strike down the, uh, the prophets of Baal, but he had no sense of his own transgression. It's a very cheap sort of virtue, says Spurgeon, to be bullying other people's vices. The easiest thing in all the world is to be constantly denouncing popular faults, but to wring the neck of one of my own bosom sins is a harder work by far and a much better sign of conversion. I think that the church today is very good at, at telling the world everything that they're doing wrong without always facing the sins that are characteristic within the church. And Spurgeon says, unless you hate all sin, unless you hate especially the besetting sin which is most congenial to your own nature, that is, which is most pleasant to, pleasing to, uh, suitable to your own nature, then you actually need to be converted. And you see how he brings this not just to the church generally, but to my soul personally. Christ does not make some things new, but all things new. And he does not teach us to cut off one lust and to indulge another, but a clean sweep must by grace be made of the love of all sin. Again, and, and these are really applications that he's making under his first point, Jehu did obey God up to a certain point. It was profitable for him, but when it became perhaps more difficult or less palatable, there he stopped. Some virtues pay well. Prudent people go in for them at once. 
remunerative graces, Spurgeon calls them, graces that pay you something back. They're very much admired, but poverty-stricken virtues have few patrons. You cannot always tell whether it is God or mammon that a man is serving when virtue is profitable, but when it comes to the turning point and the man has to be a loser for Christ, what he gives up for Christ's sake, then sincerity is tried. So the second thing then, heedlessness in the point indicated, is fatal. Why is it so significant? If we go back to this summary, Jehu didn't care to know the whole of God's will, nor to practice it, nor to yield obedience because it was God's will, and he never truly yielded his whole heart to the love of God. Why is this fatal? Because it shows that sin is not hated. Sin as a whole, sin in all its parts. If you hate sin, you'll not only hate one sin. You don't hate sin if it's just this or that sin. It's, a, it's the whole pattern of transgression. This heedlessness further indicates that self is not subdued. You say, says Spurgeon, that you've given up a certain sin, but you will not attend to such and such a command of Christ, so what does this prove? Why, that the great I is still predominating. Self is never subdued unless it's subdued in all matters. Unless I can say, Lord, I delight to do all thy will, and I long to be thoroughly conformed to it in all respects, self is not subdued. I don't think Spurgeon is saying here that you have to be a perfect man. What he's saying is you have to submit the whole of your, whole, your, your heart, your soul, yourself to the will of God. Again, says Spurgeon, this would reveal that your faith is not a living faith. We're saved by faith in Christ and not by our works. But if we can harbour and pamper anyone's sin and delight in it, that is not the faith of God's elect. I know, he says, that what I'm saying is not very pleasant to some of you, but we're not sent to preach pleasant things to you. We're to deliver healthful truth. I do pray it may be sanctified to my own soul and to yours also. Then he says this is very dishonouring to the Most High God, a kind of harem-scarem religion, this hit-or-miss godliness, this do-the-thing-that-anybody-else-does-but-never-stop-to-look-at-it, has in it a lack, a sad lack, of true reverence to God. True reverence to God makes me stop every now and then and say, is this my master's will? And so says Spurgeon, the whole point here is that we are living with a desire to glorify God, that we are putting all sin to death as much as we discern and discover it. We're putting all of self in submission to the word of God. We are living in dependence upon Jesus Christ, and so we hate all known sin. And to do anything else is dishonouring to the Most High God. In fact, says Spurgeon, there is grave cause then for suspicion that the very heart of your religion is rotten. And here he's pressing home, aiming at the conscience. It's very easy to suck to some to be a Christian, but will not be found so easy to be one. It's, I think he means here, it's easy to appear a Christian, easy to, to want to be a Christian, but it's not so easy to actually pursue this kind of godliness. And Spurgeon again here, under his second point, drives home some particular points of application. 
I'm conscious that I have been touching some sore point here, for with a great many even in our own churches, let alone those who are in the Church of England and so on, it really is not with them a question as to what the Lord would have them to do. Now, Spurgeon's not just shooting down the Church of England. He's concerned that in the national church there is, almost by definition, a phenomenal amount of nominalism. And so he says, too many, not just in the the more openly and evidently nominal churches, but amongst the, the churches to which he would belong. They're guided by their family connections. What would my parents do? What, have my, what does my family do? Uh, they, they perceive their religion. They receive, sorry, their religion as they receive their names unconsciously. They've just imbibed it. He says, this is, this is not the way it ought to be. Some, on the other hand, follow mere excitement, not just uh, family religion, but, but just their feelings. They happen to be what they now are as professors because they were persuaded into it by an eloquent divine, an eloquent preacher. They were excited, and so they acted. But there's no real grip upon the soul. There's no anchoring in the truth. And some professing Christians like to give themselves up to their taste. They believe a doctrine because they like it or because it's appropriate or, or pretty, uh, approvable. As if taste could be any better than a mere will-o'-the-wisp as a guide in religion. It is not possible, says Spurgeon, for me to be a servant of God at all while I set up my own whims to be my rule of action. So, family connection, mere tradition and human excitement, your own taste and instinct, Spurgeon says, none of these things are true religion. All of them are a revelation in, in some way of this heedless spirit. Now he comes to his third point, and here he, he tips into a more positive approach, that careful thought with regard to all God's will is most useful. And again, he gives some reasons why that's the case. A man who gives heed to walk in all the Lord's will with all his heart proves that he has the true serving spirit. It reveals the fact that we really have become disciples. It's one of the best and clearest evidences that grace reigns in the heart. Then again, it prevents much evil. If we could once get a thought, thoughtful, believing church, we should not be long without having a reformed church, engaging the mind, what does the Lord actually want me to do? Not just drifting along on the current, even the current of more or less faithful churchmanship, but an, an intelligent engagement in pursuing God's will. You'll be saved all sorts of troubles in providence if, like David, you stay a while, you pause a moment and say, bring here the ephod. If, instead of running right on without looking, you will say, Lord, where does the cloud lead me? Where does the finger of providence direct me? You'll be saved many bitter tears and your path will be more happy and pleasant to yourself. Spurgeon says, do we actually think about what God wants us to do? If we did, we'd avoid such evil. Furthermore, a heedful spirit finds out God's will, not so much a mystery as some would have us think. This is such a book that he who wills to understand it, by God's grace, shall understand. Come here in spirit, willing to know, and you will know. Come here to your Bible, with a desire to do what God would have you do, and you shall soon be well taught. Then he points out that a heedful spirit, this careful, thoughtful, uh, submissive spirit 
This is needful to certain persons. A man with a quick spirit like Jehu ought to be the more heedful. Some brothers are born with a passionate disposition. Certain men are readily subject to impulses. The more cool and calculating might not make so many mistakes here, but the more impulsive should look well to this duty of taking heed to the whole of God's will. He says it's important, especially if you know your own instinct, to, to, to run before you, before you know where you're going, to jump without looking. You've got to be very careful to be watchful and heedful. It will take this turn of an anxious desire to give heed to all the Lord's will. Would I have you precise? Yes, said a Puritan, a man called John Rogers. I am precise, for I, Richard Rogers rather. I am precise, for I serve a precise God. Would I have you careful and jealous? Yes, for you serve a jealous God. He says, I don't want you to come back to the gloom of Puritanism, but still to the rigidity of its obedience, to its stern tenacity of all its convictions and its determination sooner to die than to yield the very least point of the will of God. That's the aim. That's the goal. A holy rigidity in obedience, a stern tenacity in conviction. And once more, this heedful spirit will be a great blessing to you Christians because of that which it will lead to. If I do not take heed to do the Lord's will, I shall soon miss the society of Jesus. Christ walks most closely with those who walk most closely with the divine will. If you want communion with God, take heed that you keep his commandments and you shall abide in his love. The fourth point, and it's a brief one, we must finish by trying to urge you to practice care at once. No delays. Dear friends, may I ask you all to answer to yourselves this question, says the preacher. And again, this is one of his techniques for bringing us face to face with these things. Is my hope which I possess at the present moment truly placed where all true hope must be? Am I giving heed in the matter of hope to walk according to the commandment, to believe on Jesus Christ whom God has sent? He asks, is there anything in which you are now indulging which you know to be wrong or which you might know to be wrong if you took the trouble to search? So not only do you already know that it's wrong, but if you bothered stopping to think about it, you'd pretty quickly come to that conclusion. And in fact, you may not be thinking about it because you'd rather not reach this conclusion. Spurgeon says, if that's the case, then I charge you by your allegiance to Christ, give it up now. My dear brother, he goes on, saved in Christ, is there any one command of your master which you have neglected? Do you see how he's moving on here? Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you disobedient to him by indulging some sin? Are you neglecting and so disobedient? I shall give no hints about what it may happen to be, for it may be a different one in every case, but is there one thing that you might do for Christ which you have not done, one service which you might render to your master which you have not rendered? Then I charge you, as you hope to be found approved in the day of judgment and by the sincerity of your attachment to your Lord, see that that one thing be done and done at once with all your heart. So here really is an antidote to heedlessness, this heedfulness. First of all, heed the great commandment to obey by believing in Jesus Christ. Then consider whether or not there's anything in which you are committing a sin that ought to be given up. 
and then if you are omitting a duty which ought to be pursued. And the preacher finishes, and how often the the preacher feels like this. How I wish that I had the power to press home this matter. I feel as if I had one of the largest subjects to handle and the very smallest power to bring it home. Here's his closing plea. Beloved, do not let us be amongst those that have the name to live and are dead and who prove that they are dead by lacking the heart which clings to God. I know you cannot be perfect in life, but you must be desirous to be perfect. You cannot give up every sin practically, I know, though through infirmity we do fall into some sin or other, but the heart must give up every sin, or else it is a rotten heart in which God does not dwell, and the heart must be obedient to every command, or else it is not a heart in which Jesus Christ has come to reign. The Lord purge the inside, and the outside will soon be right enough. This is the point we made a little earlier. Spurgeon isn't demanding a full perfection at this point in our experience. What he's insisting upon is the fact that from the heart, and that's where Jehu failed, with all his heart he was not following the Lord. He only went as far as he wanted to, as far as suited him, as far as it it, it fell into the, the pattern of what he wanted and where he was going. But the true believer, the true believer wishes he could give all to Christ wishes he could obey Christ in all things, wishes there was no sin of omission or commission. And so from the soul, from the heart, he renounces all wickedness, he embraces all godliness, and he desires that by degrees that fundamental conviction will work itself out in all of his life. So when God cleans the inside of the cup and the platter, the exterior will be cleansed too. But, says Spurgeon, the Lord grant that this work may be seen to at once. As for you professors then, who have felt this sermon cut you, may it cut you. May it kill your hopes. May it drive you to self-despair. Again, you understand that Spurgeon isn't saying here, I'm glad that this is doing you damage. What he's saying is, if you are a mere professor, if you are one who shows the J. Hugh spirit in a little bit of selective zeal here and there. May this drive you to self-despair, lead you to Christ, and when you come to Christ and trust in him, then I know you will cry, Loved of my God, for him again with love intense I'd burn, chosen of him ere time began, I choose him in return. That's the testimony of every true child of God, and it should be the testimony of those who know him. So we, we come, God willing, next week to Sermon 692, as I've mentioned. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to share the blessing with other people, then one way you can do that is to leave a review on your favourite podcast app. I'm told that it makes a genuine difference and all the more so for some reason if you live outside the United States. But I do appreciate you listening. I hope it's been a blessing to you and I hope you'll join us again for more from the heart of Spurgeon, for the glory of God, in the exaltation of Christ, and in the pursuit of holiness in the lives of all his people.